Today I have joining me Dr. Mary Vietin, a board-certified clinical psychologist who served on active duty in the United States Navy from 1998 to 2008, with tours at the Naval Medical Center Portsmouth, Roosevelt Roads, Puerto Rico, and the Naval Air Station. In 2008, Dr. Vietin transferred to the Select Reserve, where she has held several positions, including the officer in charge of the Headquarters Detachment, Expeditionary Medical Facility Bethesda, and Regional Detachment Director of for New England. In 2014, she was recalled to active duty and assigned to the staff of the Navy Chief of Chaplains, where she trained over 1,000 military chaplains worldwide in pastoral response to operational and military sexual trauma. She has completed two deployments, one in 2006, the other in 2013, in support of OIF-OEF. Dr. Vietin is the Executive Director of Warfighter Advance Incorporated, which provides intense training programs such as the Advanced Seven Day for active duty and veteran warfighters with operational stress and reintegration issues, which we talk about in today's episode, which was a very fascinating. I'm excited for you to watch it. The Advanced Seven Day is a non-medical seven-day training program that uses a variety of means to change the trajectory of a warfighter's post-deployment life so that rather than an existence characterized by an endless cycle of mental illness diagnoses, medications, medical appointments, and disappointments, the warfighter has a life characterized by pride, productivity, healthy relationships, continued service, and advocacy for the same outcomes for their fellow service members. Her civilian practice, Operational Psychology Solutions, serves clients who are military, public safety, veterans, and civilians who work or have worked in high-risk operational environments. She actively encourages her clients to pursue trauma recovery and resilience outside of the medical model and proactively educates them on the dangers of psychopharmacology. With this approach, she has been successful in keeping her clients in their occupations or returning them to a fit-for-duty status while empowering them to manage residual symptoms and assist their peers. Dr. Vietin serves as the chairman of the board of directors for the International Society for Ethical Psychology and Psychiatry and on the board of directors for Operation Grateful Nation. Enjoy. Hello, and thank you for joining us today. Today I have a yeah. Today I have a guest, um, Dr. Mary Neil Vietin. Uh, I was introduced to her through Dr. Eric Monsager, the Adlerian analyst that I interviewed recently. He sent me an article. The article is titled "Warfighter Advance: The Advance Seven Day." And in the article, I, I was immediately interested because. Dr. Vietin talked about her introduction to Adlerian individual psychology while she was, I believe we'll get to that, but while she was uh, at a practicum in the Navy. Um, and she talks about the balancing between Adlerian individual psychology thought and the medical model thought and how that led to where she is today. So uh, Dr. Vietin, thank you for joining us. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Can you kind of, um, before we get into the article and how you're introduced to Adlerian individual psychology, can we just start with what was your kind of, what's your background? Why, how did your interest in psychology first begin? 
Sure. Boy, that was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I started out um, actually um, in college as a theater major um, oh. and realized I was going to take an in- uh, acting class. I wanted to, I didn't want to do that. So I um, changed to English. English uh, became a teaching degree and the um, teaching degree very uh, quickly led to um, uh getting interested in the counseling of students or the helping of students. Um, and then uh, that, that just morphed into me going to grad school and getting a PhD. So that's, that's kind of how I, I fell into it <laughs> over time. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Interesting. That's, uh, that's honestly kind of similar to, I first signed up, I wanted to be like a, like a teaching degree and I wanted to teach English and then uh, like teach the English language over in like Thailand or someplace. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I ended up, they no longer offer that program where I was going. So I switched to psychology and then I was like, I know I have to do this full time. So mm-hmm. uh, ended up, so I, I, I chose to do a PsyD in clinical psychology. Is your PhD in counseling and psychology? What, what is your PhD in? So it, it, initially it was counseling psychology, but I had to switch mm-hmm. to clinical in order to be in the Navy. So I'm oh. a, a clinical psychologist. Yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting. When did you find out you had to switch? How far into your program? Um, right about the time that it's, it's interesting because I, I didn't join the Navy for patriotic reasons. I joined the Navy because I had to have health insurance because one of my oh. children had a, a problem and I didn't have any health insurance. So oh. I knew that my, uh, pre-doctoral internship was going to be in the military because, okay. uh, you know, obviously I needed a job with insurance. Okay. So um, uh, that was kind of exploring like how to get into the military. That was when I discovered that it had to be clinical and um, oh. I switched over at that time. Okay. So when you went into, when you like basically first year of your PhD program, you already knew that you were going to try and get into the Navy. No, I didn't. No. It was, you know, almost, almost before the, just before the uh, internship process started, you know, the pre-doctoral internship where you had to run around and, oh, yeah. uh, you know, look for a place to go. That was the point at which, yeah. you know, I also uh, came to the realization that I couldn't just do an internship that um, was, you oh. know, a couple thousand dollars and, and no insurance that wasn't going to work. So yeah, I see, I see. I'm caught up. Okay. Thank you. When uh, I'm actually in the internship applying process right now. So, I, <laughs> so when you went to apply for internship, you applied to sites that were Navy and then you got accepted and then that streamlined your whole process kind of thing. So I applied to all the militaries and I applied okay. also to the, to the federal prison system because oh, okay. what I did was I narrowed my search to only to um, internship oh. sites that had um, also came with yeah. uh, benefits. Okay. So, um, and then I was accepted by, um, believe it or not, this crazy, but all, all of the Navy or military branches. So I was accepted to the army, to the air force, um, to the oh, Navy. Wow. Um, and, but I chose the Navy um, at the end of the day for probably all the wrong reasons, but it turned out <laughs> good. So <laughs> well, can, do you mind sharing your reasons why you chose the Navy? Um, the coastal locations, you know, I started looking at where air force bases were and, you know, you know, in the middle of like North Dakota and (laughs) that kind of thing. And I started thinking, Oh, let me probably going to put that aside. And then I looked, you know, kind of looked where the 
Navy bases were, you know, they're all along the coast and in Hawaii yeah. and Puerto Rico and Europe. And I started thinking, ah, that's probably a better deal. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I would have done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good, yeah. Um, and so your internship, was your internship in Germany? So the in, interestingly, um, the, the, when I was at the 97th General Hospital in Germany was before I ever went to graduate school for my PhD. I was, oh. um, I was actually earning a, um, my uh, degree in um, school counseling. And oh. they also, of course, have you do different types of practicums. And oh. um, because I needed an English-speaking practicum, they put me into the, this military hospital in in Frankfurt. And that, that was where I met Eric and, um, several uh -huh. other Adlerians and their little Adlerian clique they had going on there. <laughs> and that was where my introduction to, to that, uh, modality came, came from. Oh, wow. And then I realized that's actually where you met Eric. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, in okay, Germany. Cool. Yep. Huh. What were you doing in Germany? Um, so I was married to a German <laughs> uh. and, uh, so that was our home. We, you know, we lived over there basically until, until I actually went to graduate school. So we came back oh, okay. to the States so I could go to graduate school. Oh, okay. Wow. wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about, or introduce, so I, I read a little bit from the article, but for people who haven't read the article, can you talk about your experience there at the hospital and getting introduced to the Illyrian clique? What, it, what was it about Illyrian thought that kind of, captivated you? How did it influence you? So I was so new to mental health, to psychology, to any of that stuff at the time, that it was really one of the very few things that I, I had been exposed to. So, you know, of course, I, the, the, what is it, the classic Corsini book, Current Psychotherapies, that was kind of like the, um, the standard book at the time. And so I had read about other ones, but this was the only one where I had any practical experience and it just kind of it fit it felt it felt right you know it was um a kind of a joy to work with people under that model um and it was it was also kind of a joy just to sit around with these other Adlerians and oh. and talk about you know people's early recollections and their family constellations and stuff it just felt very um very much like like a like taking the whole psyche into um, into account as opposed to, you know, the, the usual symptom checklist, you know? Oh, right. So I, I really did like that. And then when I got to graduate school and we got deeper into the current psychotherapies, um, there just wasn't any, anything that for me came out and, and I said, oh yeah, it's, this is better than that, you know? Hmm. Um, and it was very, when I went to graduate school, the Adlerian uh, psychology was very poo pooed, you know, like it's not cognitive behavioral. So, you know, it's obviously uh, nothing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so I, you know, I didn't, I didn't try uh, to um, like push that agenda, you know, because, you know, when you're in graduate yeah. school, you kind of have to like whatever your professors like if you're going to get through <laughs> there. So, um, you know, so I was very pragmatic about that and um, kind of, even I, d I never let it go for myself, but I certainly let it go for my doctoral program because it was hmm. kind of necessary to survive. Hmm. Did you do some, did you do some uh, reading? Like, did you read Adler during graduate school or, or before? Yeah. So I was, I, I joined the North American Society for Adlerian Psychology and I, 
um, read a, a lot of the, you know, backfilled a lot of the work. I've always been a huge reader. So that was not uh, a, like an issue for me, you know, to, um, uh, read it, you know, as much as I could and, and, um, try to expose myself to other Adlerians and what, what the different, um, groups were doing. When I first joined the Navy, I actually went to the, Ad, the Adler school in Chicago and did kind of a, a, a briefing for them on, you know, the, the kind of the trauma issues that were coming out of the war from an Edlerian perspective. So, oh. you know, that I, I've, I've never lost that thread yeah. at all. Wow. Cool. Yeah. I, um, how, how was that? So uh, I understand what you mean about in graduate school, you have to kind of, you know, like what your professors like and just kind of, if you have your own mm -hmm. opinions, keep them to yourself, maybe mm -hmm. find other people <laughs> on the outside. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and then, so through graduate school, learning that, you know, the medical model and cognitive behavioral therapy and like, that's, you know, gold standard. And then you get to the Navy. And of course it's a continuation of that thread of thought. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you? that dissonance or like the trying to trying to find your identity as a clinical psychologist in that area yeah so actually it's a really interesting question i can tell you that um graduate school is, was very stressful you know um mm. the the class that came through before mine they let seven people in and by the at the end of the master's program they had pushed five of them out so my Whoa. class came in you know just very aware of that stress yeah. level, you know? And so, you know, I wasn't making any waves and neither was anybody else, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I will tell you that the, if you want to make waves in your program where I went at least, announce that you're going to join the military. Uh, well, <laughs> that really? was, I was very unpopular decision, but anyway, huh. so I, but I, I did it. Um, but I'll tell you that between the stress of graduate school, the stress of that internship of joining the Navy, becoming an officer, you know, there was just a, a lot of pressure, you know, at, at all times. Mm. So I can tell you that I abandoned anything that was not um, just the status quo, mm. because it was just a matter of surviving. Um, how, however mm. you want me to do this is how I'm going to do it. However you want me to write this up is how I'm going to write it up. <laughs> because, um, you know, having, yeah. um, you know, kind of your own opinion or your own agenda just wasn't very efficient at that time. So, um, and, and, and I'll- On and, top of I'll, all that- yeah. Sorry, I was yeah. just thinking on top of all that, you're also thinking this isn't just for like me and my ego. This is for my daughter. Like, right. Right. Because yeah. you're trying yeah. to get. Absolutely. Yeah. I got to survive this. Yeah. I absolutely have to get get through this and stay, you know. Um, so yeah. but what happened to me was I did my first tour and then I decided. So a tour is usually three or four years in the military. And then you you okay. uh, decide that you're going to extend your contract as an officer. If you were enlisted, you would reenlist. But officers just sort of decide to stay. Uh -huh. So I decided to do another tour and um, I got sent to Puerto Rico, which is awesome. That was kind of the whole point of the exercise, right? Yeah. So I got sent to Puerto Rico. Yeah. Um, and what happened was, um, so I'm practicing the way the Navy wants me to practice. Everything kind of laying flat the way the, the Navy wants it to happen. And, you know, I just started to kind of notice that as, um, you know, we would send like people would come in and we'd uh, follow this thing that turns out to be a great big lie that therapy and medicine are better together. So we would follow this 
uh-huh. model. And so we'd talk to people, but we'd be like, just a little pills, maybe a couple, you know, just a tiny dose of something would be good for you. Send them down the hall to psychiatry. And, um, uh-huh. and I, and I just see them getting worse. And I, you know, and, mm. and, and as, as they started to the, get drug, more drugs, bigger drugs, you know, higher doses, let's change it. They yeah. would just, they get worse. And, and you can't help notice that after a while. Yeah. So, um, so then, then what happened was we had a, a client that came in, a, a young um, uh, soldier who um, his parents brought him into the emergency room. He's a Puerto Rican and he, um, they, and he was in the army and they brought him in and said that mm-hmm. they thought he was going to kill himself. So we did the thing that you do, you know, you call in, in the Navy, at least you call in the Learjet, you get him a psych tech, you drug the crap out of him. You send him to Walter Reed. Um, hmm. And then what happened was about 10 days later, he hung himself on the ward in, hmm. in Walter Reed, um, which wow. theoretically isn't even possible. Right. So yeah. yeah. How do you do um, that? Yeah. yeah. So how, how, how does that even happen? So when he came back, um, you know, my staff and I went to his funeral um, and I just, I remember the moment, you know, just looking down at this kid in, in the coffin, in his class A's, um, and, um, and thinking to myself, what are we doing? You know, like, like what, what, what is happening here? Like, how, how is this even possible? You know, and then I really started yeah. to, um, do what I should have done way back in graduate school, which is I started to, um, look harder at this medical model idea and, um, I realized that um, from like that it it isn't real that it's like you know like no one ever confuses uh, a model airplane with an airplane right so why are we confusing <laughs> a model with reality in in the medical world and um, you know and and per- pass it we just we just dropped the word model and started telling everyone their problems were medical um, and that we had these um, neurotoxic solutions for them. Um, and, and I realized that I had been participating in something that was just terrible, you know? And so that was kind of, that was part of, part of the, um, you know, my re, uh, renewal as a, as a practitioner was going back to my Adlerian roots at that point. Cause if I'm not going to practice this way, how am I going to practice? Um, yeah. and I realized very quickly that, um, while the Navy really prefers that you do the, do it, you know, in a cognitive behavioral or one of these empirically validated ways that the fact yeah. is that I was a licensed independent practitioner and oh. um, that they really didn't have a way of oh. forcing me into a certain treatment model. So huh. I stopped using it oh, wow. and, and oh. I went back to my roots. So oh. that was actually my boldly. next question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. was how did, how did you, with having that, that, dissonance and trying to go back to your roots mm-hmm. how did you handle that while being in the navy but yeah i guess yeah yeah so i would oh. get referrals all the time and, and that would say you know please do cognitive behavioral therapy with this person huh. and you know i'd write the you know write the provider back that sent the referral and said i'll take the referral but you know you're not going to tell me how to practice and they were like okay <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> well that's cool yeah. Well, um, I mean, when, when yeah, that soldier died, I, act, I got a backbone at that point, you know, I really did. And I said, I'm not, mm. I'm just not going to yeah. participate in this, um, anymore. Hmm. And what part of that, let's see. So 
the medical model, can you can you kind of talk a little bit about how does psychology or psychiatry model themselves after a medical profession? Sure. How is it a medical uh, so, model and where did they go? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so you know, the way the way that you're you know, it's, it was probably, I don't know, 50, 75 years ago. I'm really not even sure anymore. Right around the time um, yeah. where there, that, where um, Thomas Saz and some other people were practicing, but they, they just, they just literally sat down and decided that, um, you know, real doctors were getting, you know, all of the uh, reimbursement money and they were getting all of this, the mm. attention and, and they needed to, present themselves as uh, medical doctors, you know, in psychiatry, um, in order to um, legitimize themselves. And so, you know, they, that the DSM, you know, between the two and the three, they changed it from prose into this thing that was supposed to look very uh, medical like, uh -huh. um, and the uh -huh. diagnoses, you know, and started, you know, this drumbeat of, you know, these are not mind problems. They're not meant, you know, they're, they're uh -huh. brain problems. You know, and, and I mean, let's be real about this. If you have a problem with your brain, you need to go to a neurologist. Mm -hmm. That is their, their realm, right? When you, <laughs> even psychiatrists, <laughs> even the word psyche, it means your spirit or your soul or your, your mind, yeah. basically. Um, and, and they were never the yeah. doctors of the brain. They were always the doctors of the psyche. But, but it, they just a very intentional um, uh, road to conflate those two things so that the public would think that if you have your emotions are too big or your behavior is too bad, that, um, that that was somehow a brain problem as opposed to, a um, a mind problem. And in, and some of them even argue that there, there's no separation. There's just like literally no separation uh -huh. between those two things. Yeah. Yeah. Like there is, there is no mind. It's all brain. Right, exactly. And so, so then yeah. around that time, I actually was introduced to an organization called the the uh, International Society for Ethical Psychology and Psychiatry. And what this is is it, it's a it's a group of like minded psychologists and psychiatrists who are um, you know trying to pr provide something that is not medical model um, and to continue our profession oh. in a much more honest and believe it or not more scientific way. Um, because there is no, there's no science behind this medical model idea, you know, it, there just isn't any. So, um, you know, trying to, trying to, um, get people to, to take a step back from the illusion, um, that is created and to realize that, um, you know, there, there's, there's nothing behind the illusion. Hmm. Yeah. Um, what is that task force that you just mentioned? It's the International Society for Ethical Psychology and Psychiatry. So oh, okay. The, okay. their website is... I'll put a uh, link to that in the video. Yeah, it's it, the, the, um, the website is psychintegrity.org. Okay. Um, where did you... Can you talk about meeting Alan Francis, who was the chairman for the DSM-4 task force? What was that? What, yeah. Can you tell us about that meeting? And yeah, so I actually met him at that... an ISIP conference. Um, the ISIP had their conference in Los Angeles. I don't remember what year it was, um, but that would be easy to find <laughs> on their website. Um, and um, 
So I, um, it was very, very controversial to have him speak at ISIP because hmm. the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual is one of the things that um, most of us are incredibly critical of. And of him being the um, hmm. managing editor made, made him a, kind of an unpopular guy. Um, but at the yeah. time, <laughs> you know, at the time he was in a uh, kind of a, in a mode where he was saying, hey, this, this whole thing has gotten out of control. And so he was, um, I, you know, I was listening very carefully to him and because, you know, up until then, I thought that just the medicating was the problem and listening to him speak and, and, and criticize his own document and his own work and, and kind of yeah. dissect the fact that everything in the diagnostic manual is also completely non-medical. There's not a single thing in that book that has, um, medical underpinnings, um, or medical findings or objective medical tests behind it. Um, now, except in the DSM-5, they put a couple of neurological disorders in, I think, again, to help with the conflation oh. a little bit. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, it keeps things confusing, right? Um, but, you know, yeah, the wow. traditional psychiatric disorders, um, none of them have medical underpinnings or objective tests. And that was what he was there to talk about was, you know, hey, this whole thing is like... Um, you know, kind of gotten away from us. And we, and we keep publishing um, bigger and bigger editions that um, encompass more and more of human experience and human life and human suffering. And, and they're grasping all these things that aren't actually pathological and telling people that they are. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. I think uh, I can't, I don't remember exactly, but a quote that you wrote in the article was that uh, the DSM is basically scientifically invalid and unreliable, statistically unreliable, the diagnoses? So, you know what, that actually is um, the official position of the National Institutes of Mental Health. So our government's oh. highest um, uh, organization in mental health acknowledges that the diagnostic manual is unreliable and invalid as a document. Um, and so wow. Thomas Inzel actually put that on his blog at one point. I can, I'll send you the blog post if you want. I, I have it. Oh, it's super, okay. um, I, I, I screenshotted it. I'll save it forever. Right. So, um, <laughs> but they actually have said, you know, they need to, we need to move away from this because, you know, it doesn't provide us with, um, you know, any kind of underpinnings for research that's, um, you know, that's scientifically valid. And of course, most people just completely ignore that and, and plow right on with their research. But, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you can't argue with, wow. um, you know, someone with the credentials of Thomas Insel when he says that book is um, invalid and unreliable. Oh. He's right, by I'm the way. I'm unfamiliar with Thomas Insel. <laughs> he was the <laughs> uh, director of the National Institutes of Mental Health before the current guy. So not oh, okay. that long ago. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah s send me that if you could. I sure will. Yeah. Um, okay. So. Okay, that that all makes sense. When it comes to cognitive behavioral therapy, mm -hmm. do you think that some of these more like recent like acceptance commitment therapy or emotional focus therapy or cognitive and behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, do you think that those hold water? Like, would you ever, you said in the, they would refer people to you and say, you know, treatment with CBT. And you said, don't tell me how to do my job. But would you ever do CBT? Like, do you find those are those actually empirically supported? <laughs> yeah. 
So, so I think um, a couple of things, you know, again, you have to, when you're in my world, like with, with ISIP, we have these talks all the time, yeah. you know, about, first of all, what does empirically validated mean when um, there's no two human beings alike? You know, it, I mean, it, it loses its meaning immediately because everybody is kind of their own experiment in their own life. And, you know, so it might help somebody. It might help not help the next person. But when you look at the data and the and the research for to that claims things are empirically validated, it's it's all kind of a mathematical concept that says this works on this average human. Right. But there isn't an average human. There's you and there's me and there's all the other humans and none of us are average. So you know, what, what does empirically validated even mean in those, you know, uh, in that context? You know, again, it's a medical concept that's being applied uh, to a, a psyche problem. And it, it philosophically and in, in practicality really doesn't hold up. So, you know, do, so, hmm. you know, would I say, oh, I'm, I'm against cognitive behavioral therapy or any of these others? No, no, of course not. But, um, you know, the, if it helps the person, you know, who am I to, um, you know, uh, (laughs) you know, say, but I, you know, again, say anything about it, but I mean, I've had a lot of people that have entered the, my office and they'll, the first thing that I ask them is, you know, what have you done before in therapy? And they'll tell me, and, and then I'll say, well, how was that for you? And, you know, and I've had so many people that just mock those types of therapy. Um, and in, and in my particular arena, um, some of the things that we do um, to people in the name of therapy are actually, I think they're cruel. Um, like doing desensitization stuff to someone who's been in a war zone, you know, like how many times do I have to think about that, you know, that bomb dropping on the school and all those dead children, you know, and do you really want to desensitize somebody yeah. to that? Like, shouldn't they be upset by something like that? Isn't that normal? Human, you know, but, but again, uh, these, these kinds of models uh, don't take that type of thing into consideration. Um, you know, so, um, you know, I think that whatever you do with a person should be as individual as that person. Um, and, um, you know, you know, obviously some, you know, there's, there's going to be some desensitization things that work really well. Um, and then there's a point at which one size fits all just can't. Um, it, it can't be right. Yeah. Yeah. Exposure therapy. That's, and that was that what it, no prolonged exposure therapy. Yeah. 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 Yep. Um, yep. Can you, can you, okay. So after Puerto Rico, you started, you said you got a backbone, you really started, uh, holding to what your own personal convictions and views. Mm-hmm. How much longer were you in the Navy and what was, what, what did it look like after that? So I was in the Navy for, I did another tour after that. So about four years. So I did a total okay. of um, 10 years, four months and 28 days on active duty. Um, <laughs> oh. And then I, I transferred to the reserves and um, I okay. actually finished out my career, a total of 22 years in the reserves. Um, and did, I did two more years on active duty as a reservist because I didn't read the fine print and I got called back twice. So, (laughs) so, um, so I, so my, my 10 years became 12 years, um, and then eight as a reservist. So, um, but, but I started working with ISIP, um, a lot. I'm actually the chairman of the board now, you know, kind of 
you know, moved up and oh. become very active in that organization. Yeah, um, wow. And then um, also um, as part of my, uh, uh, yeah, I, I started basically surviving and, and making money was through private practice and consultation and that kind of thing. But um, the, I started a, an organization with some other military people called Warfighter Advance. Um, and that's what that article is about. And that really um, was an invited paper to um, the Journal of Individual Psychology because they were doing a, 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 a what do you call it, One, an issue on, you know, kind of Adlerian, Adlerian psychology in practice. And so they came to me and said, we know you, you're Adlerian. We know you have this program. It's heavily influenced by Adlerian psychology. So, you know, would you write a paper? So I did. But we put that program together um, in order to offer um, war fighters. So anybody who's been in the military um, who uh, has uh, operational stress problems, um, we wanted to offer them a, an alternative to the medical model. And, and when I say an alternative, I don't mean an alternative treatment. I mean, an alternative to treatment. Um, so and it could just a complete and total alternative full stop so that um, they don't have to get into that, uh, the, the psychiatric pipeline in order to um, get relief. Um, so we're mm -hmm. very popular with um, people who have been in the psychiatric pipeline who want out of it. Um, but we're uh -huh. also very popular with people who, because of their careers, can't go down that road. Um, and have, so they, you know, like people who, um, you know, are aviators or have high security clearances or things like that, where they just can't get themselves tangled up in um, the mental health and model with all of the labeling and drugging, because then they wouldn't be able to work. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, I see. I've heard of that, uh, especially people on active duty they might go to see a therapist outside of the military. That way they don't have to report it and things like that. Mm -hmm. It's kind yeah. of like that. If they can, yeah, if they yeah. can afford it, they would, they would pay for something outside. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But, and it, because if they mm -hmm. go within the system, you know, based on this um, invalid and unreliable labeling system, um, they could end up with a label that would yeah. preclude them from being on active duty. Oh, wow. Okay. Do, uh, when they come to you, so you've got the Warfighter Advance and then Advance 7 Day, right? So the Advance 7 Those Day is a things? product. No, it's a product of Warfighter Advance. So we offer a seven-day oh, okay, okay, program okay. and we also have a two-and-a-half-day program. So, Got it. Can you tell us a little bit about what, if I was, um, if I was coming to you and I had maybe some, some post- traumatic stress, uh, what, what would I expect from Warfighter Advance? How would I expect to be treated? How, how would my, mm -hmm. my concerns be handled? Yeah. Sure. So, um, so it's, it's, it's a training model. Um, so, okay. you know, that's, that's the most important thing that you, you're, there's a lot of learning that happens there. And we try to make sure that at the end of the seven day that you have all the information that you need not to make any missteps. Um, but, but the way that we, um, we, we have a lot of people who've been in psychiatric inpatient programs, you know, soldiers who've been put into those kinds of things or the veterans administration. Um, so the, the most important thing for us is the very first moment we want to make sure that, um, the people who are participating realize that 
they're not in a treatment program and that we are not going to take their dignity away, their clothes away, their belt and their shoes and, you know, and then, you know, feed them back to them the way the psychiatric system does. You know, if you're good, we'll give you your belt back kind of thing. We, you know, so we, so we bring everybody in, you know, uh, welcome them, put them in lodging. And then um, we have a gala opening dinner the first night just to scream to them, you know, this is not a medical process. Um, The mayor of the town usually shows up and some some other dignitaries show up from our county commissioners and things like that. Um, Sometimes our state delegate will come out to the dinners and it's a, you know, it's a big fancy thing, you know, with tablecloths, the whole mess. So, um, so then, you know, what we do throughout the week is we have um, didactics usually in the morning and then in the afternoon, um, there's different types of activities that, um, uh, so it, instead of academic learning, it's more learning about yourself, but through, um, through activities, um, sometimes, sometimes they're called experiential learning type things. But um, so like, for example, um, one of the things that they will learn is a, a whole bunch about fear and the fact that, you know, war fighters are trained to run towards danger. And then the medical model tells them that they can't do that anymore because they can't handle it. And every time they have a feeling or a fear, they should call it anxiety. Who knows why? And then run to the doctor Uh and, you know, get a Xanax or get some Uh other kind of medicine. So, um, you know, so basically what we try to do is, is break that medical or that, that professional patient identity and put the warfighter identity back. Um, and there's all kinds of, um, just fun, cool activities that we do. Um, and then in the evenings we have a speaker and that speaker is usually someone who's, um, a psychiatric survivor, but also a, um, uh, a veteran. So, uh, usually Monday is a Vietnam veteran. Um, and, um, uh, Wednesday we have someone who, um, is, uh, drug and alcohol, um, 12 step person. Um, to, you know, who's also a veteran, tell their story um, of recovery. And then um, Thursday night, we have, um, we also have a speaker that comes and talks more about um, surviving the the psychiatric model. So it's, you know, that's kind of like a personal story thing in the, in the evening. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And then um, Friday, what we do is we take them, we take everybody out to Arlington Cemetery and, and do some really serious grief work. Um, Wow. And uh, we take our Vietnam veterans to the wall that day and do some really serious grief work. Um, uh-huh. So, you know, again, something that's pretty cathartic for everyone, um, but trying yeah. to um, really protest the idea that our grief and our suffering is somehow, you know, uh, clinical depression or anything of that nature, you know. Uh-huh. So, yeah. yeah, it's very powerful. Wow, week. that's amazing. That- yeah, that's yeah. I bet that's a. Uh, do they have like um, once that week is over, I imagine that they have already formed friendships that are going to last mm-hmm. for uh, maybe a lifetime. Because um, I was Probably. thinking it's a very powerful, intense week, and then it mm-hmm. comes to a halt. What is it like for them? leaving. Sure. So, yeah, so it's really important, you know, like, so in, in the medical model, you'd have aftercare, right. And programs have aftercare Uh and then they, um, and it terminates after a certain amount of time. And again, very unnatural, like what, what, you Uh know, like, do we terminate after three months, six months, your lifetime, Uh who knows? Right. So, um, 
So we graduate, we have a graduation Saturday morning, everybody graduates, and then they join our alumni association. And of course, that's a lifetime membership. um, And they become one with all of the other people who've ever graduated from the program. It's about 500 people by now. Um, But their and their cohort is um, given some ways to stay together, you know, like a like a signal group, you know, like a signal chat. And um, we have a, a, a private Facebook page that is just for our alumni. And you know, we have lots of different ways to um, for them to stay together, and um, yeah. and and like you said, they've all by then they've all uh, exchanged phone numbers, and we we mm-hmm. give everybody a list of who is you know who is in their cohort and their contact information, wow. so they can you know stay together. But it becomes a, a permanent um, support system, and then we have um, they come from all over the country, and actually. Um, several other countries besides ours. So we have a group of um, deputies throughout the country that um, on the 22nd day of every month, there's a reason for obviously for that number, the 22nd day of every month, um, we actually have reach out to absolutely everyone who's ever graduated from the program. Um, Uh Check on them, make sure they're okay. Um, Do they need anything? You know, can we help them with something? Um, Provide them with some kind of support. So at least once a month, um, they everyone gets checked in on, but it, you know it could be a lot more because um, you know some people just you know may may have a crisis and they didn't well time it to for the twenty second of the month. So you know, but we're we're there for them. You know, as an alumni wow. association, we're there for them. You know, for people who don't know, can you explain why the twenty second of the month? Sure. So for, for the longest time, you know, the the folklore was you know twenty two veterans a day commit suicide. Um, the number is probably a lot higher. The Veterans Administration likes to tell us it's they've diminished it and it's actually quite a bit lower. Um, but the, the, the number um, is, even if it was right for veterans, doesn't include active duty or um, it doesn't include um, reservists um, oh, wow. who also commit suicide at a pretty, um, I think yeah. it's every other day for active duty and it's every 36 hours hours for reserve, but it could be the other way around. I'm not, I forget the exact statistic, but it's a lot of people. Um, So the number is kind of artificial. And then of course, it's always did something with something, a suicide that didn't get ruled a suicide, you know, so it's a very murky um, number, but the point is it's a big number. And we picked that. um, We just went, went ahead with that because it's the one that was kind of the drumbeat for a lot of years, 22 a day, 22 a day, 22 a day. So we figured we'll, we'll do it on the 22nd and hope um, that we, we can keep that number down. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back to, you highlighted um, that. So you have these war fighters, they go into combat, they're taught to run toward the run toward danger and then mm-hmm. they come home and they 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 have flashbacks or they get like this this fear and then mm-hmm. the medical professionals tell them oh that's anxiety you should take these pills or whatever it might be mm-hmm. um and then you try to instill the warfighter back into them mm-hmm. i think that that i remember i was in this trauma research group and we were having an article discussion and the article it was basically people saying that maybe we should change the name of PTSD from post-traumatic stress disorder to post-traumatic wounding or something like that. Post, mm. Like that way, that way war fighters might resonate more with being wounded than having a disorder. 
uh, I was thinking first, if it's still in the DSM, it's it it's still it's still a medical condition, is what they're going right. to say. And yeah. second, nobody, most people just know PTSD. They don't even think about what it means. It's an acronym, you know. Um, right, right, right. And I was thinking, what we need is, yeah, we need people that come home. Is we need to help them stay in the mindset of this is a battle that I can win and I need my comrades and I need help. And I, mm-hmm. it's not like the battle hasn't ended. I need, I still need that war fighting spirit to press on and to, to defeat this battle here at home. Yeah. Right. So I think that's awesome that you guys incorporate that. Yeah. And it, so we, you know, we have, we have these arguments all the time about, you know, is it a, is it an injury or is it a, you know, and and the oh, point yeah, you make injury. is, is, is correct is either way that's medical. And then you're still going to put it in the DSM. Yeah. So now we're psychiatric. Um, yeah. So the, the word that we use is suffering, you know, and of course mm-hmm. now we can't even use the word suffering because recently the American Psychiatric Association has said that suffering is their purview, you know, Whoa. so yeah, that, and that's terrifying. That is absolutely terrifying that all, wow. all suffering is potentially psychiatric, um, you know, purview. Wow. So wow. But, but that's, that's, the, that's the word that we prefer is because suffering is normal uh-huh. and it's part of life. Yeah. And so, you know, really and truly getting past what, what they um, have been through and learning to take it with them is, is, is not a, it's not treatment, it's a life skill. And so, you know, we're, it, it's just people who have that life skill, teaching people who need that life skill, you know, you know, and it becomes a, a, a training thing. So, um, you know, if, if you're going to call it anything at all, I, I like to say it's an amputation. So and what got amputated in but through your trauma and it could be any trauma, it doesn't have to be war trauma. But what got amputated is your peace of mind. And and, and you're not getting it back. So it's not like, you know, all of a sudden you, you're like going to unsee the things you saw or that, that, you know, somehow that you're going to have like an unrape situation, right? It, it happened, uh-huh. right? You're not going to unsee it. It's not going to unhappen. So, you know, your, your peace of mind is gone. And how, how do you figure out how to go forward um, hmm. knowing what you know? Uh, you know, it's, hmm. it, it's tough, but it's doable. Um, and it doesn't matter how many drugs you take, all that's going to do is, you know, create a neurotoxic, you know, environment for your brain. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't change the fact at all that you got to figure out how to take that with you. Well, yeah. Is there, um, that's a good point. That's, I like that. Is there, I'm just thinking, I, let's say. You mentioned earlier people who have maybe been to, they have been hospitalized inpatient or psychiatric mm-hmm. hospitals. Um, people, are there people who come to you that want to join the Warfighter Advance program and, but maybe they're not able to because they're too high risk or something like that? So we have never had that situation. Um, we've literally had people leave an inpatient on Friday and come to us on Sunday. Oh wow! You know, um, and um, which also shows you how much how helpful that was to them, yeah. Yeah. which is not very. Um, yeah. So you know, and again, you know, and they're absolutely 
flabbergasted at the, you know, the contrast, obviously, because, you know, they'll, they'll call me up and they'll say, well, are you going to, are you going to take my shoelaces? Are you going to take my belt? You know, or, and I say, do you need me to take your shoelaces? You know? And of course they're like, no, you know, cause they're indignant. Right. And I yeah. said, well, you know, I feel like if you could be trusted with an M4 in an open market in Kabul, you know, mm. that I should be able to trust you with your shoelaces. So how about if we start there, you know? So, um, <laughs> You know, and they, they're put in um, rooms, you know, like rooms with a, they have a mentor who, um, you know, is there to, you know, help them out um, and help them along the way. And they're, you know, with other war fighters who all have the same exact situation, you know, and because we're not, we're a training program, not a treatment program, um, you know, all this HIPAA stuff goes out the window. So um, we're able to speak very openly. Nobody's writing anything down, yeah. right? But we're, people are able to compare notes about not just about where they've been treatment wise, but where they've been, how they feel. Um, and all that goes out the window with HIPAA. Everyone is very, very isolated. I see you, you write everything mm -hmm. down, you put it in my chart and it, and I am left with the feeling that it's me, right? And it's mm -hmm. just me. Mm -hmm. um, when in fact, it's not you or just you. It's, um, it's actually everybody who's had that experience. Um, and, yeah. and, and again, the, the word is not that you somehow become mentally ill. It, it changes you. The word is change. You're profoundly changed. Um, and you know, and so one of the things they learn at our program is that you can't, um, you can't unlearn the things you can't unchange, but you can change some more. You can learn new things. Right. So, uh -huh. you know, um, you know, and so that's what the week becomes about is, you know, and then the other thing is that the medical model um, tries very hard to remove the responsibility. So I'm not responsible for my outcome. My psychiatrist is, and they've got it, or my psychologist, they got to just get the right therapy, the uh -huh. right, you know, whatever. And we put that also right back onto the warfighter. You're responsible for your outcome. Mm -hmm. We, we'll show you the way we will be here for you no matter what. But the fact is that with the tools, you you are now re-empowered and you um, are 100% responsible for the outcome. Hmm. You know, you use them or you don't. No. Um, and it, it's, it's a, you know, so you see the, at the end of the week, you know, uh, our, our graduates standing up straighter and feeling empowered and, you know, and just like, you know, this isn't going to be easy, but I got this, you know. So, yeah. so, so one thing my colleagues will point out to me all the time is that, oh, people just want the pill. They just want the easy way out. And, and so I, my retort to that always is, do you know anyone who joined the Marine Corps because they wanted the easy way out? <laughs> like that's not even a yeah. thing, right? So if you, but so what we uh -huh. find is, is if we say to them, we know the way out, but it's going to be hard. Um, they say, mm. okay, when, when do we start? Yeah. You know, let's, let's get to work. Yeah. So it is hard. It's, it's incredibly much more meaningful. hard. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Um, it, yeah, you, t you said, you said the, one of the things the medical model does, especially with, I guess, probably psychiatrists is it takes away the responsibility from the individual. I can think of so many people that I've met with or seen that, um, they wind up in an inpatient facility multiple times. And they say, you know, it's like, well, what do you think? What is it that brought you here? And then it's like, well, I just needed to get my meds changed because maybe my medications were off mm -hmm. and I just need the right medication or the right dosage or whatever it mm -hmm. might be. 
and people with diagnosed with bipolar disorder, you ask them if this wasn't a medical condition, what do you think is going on in your life that might contribute to these, the way that you're feeling? And then they say, Oh, I've never even thought of that before. Mm. Yeah. 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 And so, and again, one of the, one of the things that, so all of our warfighters have so many labels you know, it's, it's because, because again, there's no, there's no inner rate of reliability whatsoever. So, you know, they have, and they, and they, sometimes they have really stupid labels. Like I've, we had a guy come in who had a, in his medical record, it said, um, combat induced schizophrenia. Like, what is that? Awesome. Right. So but people just boldly <laughs> diagnose crap. So, um, so, uh-huh. but, but one of the, one of the things that we do over the course of the week is we really encourage them to drop all the labels because of the fact that they are in fact invalid and unreliable and there's no medical underpinnings. It's my opinion of you. It's a judgment. You know, uh-huh. I'm judging uh-huh. your behavior uh-huh. as, um, as a barrent or your, um, your outlier, uh, the variation, the human variation, I'm saying that's too much, um, or you're too sad uh-huh. or too whatever. Um, so we ask them to just let, let all that crap go. Um, and, you know, and somebody will inevitably, um, say, well, surely you don't mean like if I hallucinate or if I hear things, because a lot of traumatized people do um, hallucinate all the time, you know, and, and, um, and, you know, and so one of the things that we'll point out to them again, there's no, um, there's no medical underpinnings that say that can, that can show like your brain has something wrong with it because you hallucinate. Um, Hmm. You know, there's no MRI, you can't see it on a PET scan, you know, it's just, you tell me you hallucinate and I have to either believe you or not. It's uh-huh. kind of a very it's unscientific exchange. No. So, right. but, but, you know, one of the things we'll point out to them is if you flip to the page in the diagnostic manual where it talks about culture and religion, it clearly says, you know, if, if you're a Catholic and you see the Virgin Mary, right on. If you're not Catholic and you see the Virgin Mary, <laughs> you're psychotic. Like, how is that even scientific? <laughs> right? Um, and so, you know, and, and in, in our culture, we're going to put you in the hospital, but in this culture over here, we're going to make you the shaman of the community because you have a gift Mm, because you see things that other people don't see. Right. So who's right. And why am I going to be an arrogant, ugly American and say, well, obviously we're right. You know, I don't know that we're right. Uh Um, all I know is that Uh there's no science, you know? So, um, you know, you know, so again, it's, it's not that hallucination is great. It's just that it's an experience and it's not, you know, not a sign of illness, but what, what ends up, you know, again, you know, we, we do have people go through the program that have problems like that and we, we, we can teach them some really cool skills. And, um, most of them, I will say the vast majority, um, once they get off the psych meds, stop hallucinating. Um, so, and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll ask them flat out, have you ever hallucinated before you met a psychiatrist? And they'll say no. And they'll say, well, what would they tell you about your hallucinating? And they said, well, it's my deteriorating condition is why I'm hallucinating. Not to say, did it ever occur to you that maybe your drug may be your problem? Um, and they, you know, of course, no, because the drumbeat is you're, you're deteriorating and you're always going to need me and my medicine. So, um, Anyway, but once they get off of them and they've been off of them for a certain amount of time, it almost inevitably resolves. So. Hmm. How long have you been doing, how many years have you been doing this with Warfighter Advance? 
uh, the Warfighter program. We, the first one we did was in the fall of 2014, 2014 in the fall. Okay. Yeah. Uh, almost a decade. Good. Almost. Congratulations. That's it's, awesome. It's going to kill yeah. me. <laughs> um, <laughs> what have your outcomes been like, or have you done any, have you done any studies or outcome, whatever, yeah. uh, in order yeah. to show that? Yeah. yeah. So thank you for asking. That's a really good question. Yeah. So uh, there's a, and there's a couple of answers to that because when you say, yeah. well, um, you know, we have this person who started our program homeless and he's now a graduate student at William and Mary, right? People are like, well, that's anecdotal. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> okay. Not to him. Right. So, um, yeah. and, and, you know, there was a, a, a writer that, that, um, I think of it, I'll think of it. If I think of his name, I'll tell you, but he, he once said to me when he came out to do an article on the program that, you know, at some point, if you have enough anecdotes, that's evidence. Right. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, you have, you have a very good point there. So he said, so don't let people blow you off because, you know, of anecdotes. Um, but we, um, we do have a, a, a research program going on. We collect a lot of data coming in, people coming in, people while they're there going afterwards. And, and um, so we do have a, pro, a, a, a research project where we kind of look at where they are in their lives before um, and then talk to them, you know, what they think has changed a couple of days after they get home. Um, and then we look at them three months down the road, six months, just because we want to see for our own selves if there's durability yeah. in um, in what we're doing. So um, we, we've been collecting that data and um, analyzing it as we go along. And we can see, um, you know, we can see some pretty dramatic uh, outcomes, which is kind of fun. Um, so we yeah. just we do like a, an OQ at the beginning and the end just to kind of. Um, you know, have some quick and quick and dirty uh, piece of data for the uh, donors. And we usually get about a 20% drop in um, OQ scores over the course of the week, which is wow. not bad. Um, yeah. And considering that everything we do is pretty terrifying. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, yeah. yeah, you know, it's it, that that's kind of a nice thing is to see that just that piece of data by itself. Hmm. So... Yeah, that was a, a, that is, you, you mentioned it, that is something to consider about like OQ scores. Um, if, if, if you're placing them in some terrifying <laughs> or you know, heavy grief work, um, yeah, maybe there is, maybe there, and that's all symptom based too. So mm -hmm. sure. just thinking through, sure. yeah, thinking through if you're not really yeah. aiming for symptom reduction in a way, but at the same time some of the work might increase some of the symptoms. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just, yeah. it's interesting. Yeah. One, yeah. Of, one of the things we, we are very, so during the week, we're very open about everything we're doing. Right. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of theater involved in what we do. And there's a lot of, you know, um, you know, uh, yeah. everything is timed in a certain way. And so like on Thursday, we do a, a ton of grief work and, but everything that day is um, organized so that um, you'll go from, uh, something happy to something not so happy to something happy to something not so happy. I don't, I don't know what the right word, but that, so we, we create the yeah. roller coaster throughout the day. And then we, we uh, talk about it and we're just wow. like, you're, you're not, you're, see, you're supposed to be bipolar because you were down at, 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 during this hour and you're up on this hour and you're down on this hour and you're up on this hour. You know, we, we you know, but moods fluctuate and, and, and look at that. Y'all handled it. Right. <laughs> 
So, uh-huh. and, 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 and how did you handle it? You know, you used each other, you use your resources, you know, um, it's just so many different things. And so I think that's part of it is they leave their symptoms are reduced by the fact that they realize that they are, um, they're not incapacitated mm-hmm. and that they have mastery. And so, you know, mm-hmm. all those, all the things on the OQ that get that are a sense of lack of mastery, they just plummet. You're really, you're really building up ego strength, you know, like that's a lot of it, a lot of it. Yeah. That's so and cool. And, and, and the, and, and the, and the unit cohesion, you know, the community. Yeah. 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 And seeing, yeah, I'm not alone. It's basically like a big group therapy training exercise, the universality. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and the, the thing is, the thing is that, uh, you know, the, we would never use the word therapy there. We, we actually, the first yeah. day we tell people all of, all of these psychiatric terms that you've been using to describe your emotional life, forget about them. We're not going to use them the entire yeah. week. So of course we, we are, our group sessions are called seminars very intentionally because okay. it's education yeah. and not therapy, but, but even, yeah. a, even a seminar can be therapeutic depending on mm. what happens in that seminar. I mean, anything can be therapeutic. A, a sitting down family style for dinner can be therapeutic, right? If yeah. under the right conditions. Yeah. So I think everything we do is therapeutic. None of it's therapy. Mm. None of it's intended in that yeah. way. Yeah, I apologize. I didn't mean to miss me speak there. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. Uh, thanks for the it's, clarification. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, what did you see... Do you see any upcoming changes in the program or how might it evolve over the next, next 10 years? The next 10 years. Yes. I I don't know if I will survive (laughs) the next 10 years. (laughs) That's happening. So um, I, I think, um, so we have a a two day product that we do and we we developed it during, um, we developed it during COVID because we couldn't, have open bay sleeping arrangements. And so we were able to um, have a, you know, still put the information out um, by having people sleep in separate hotel rooms. And then when we had the, the lectures and things, you know, we could just sit widely spaced with masks, you know, and and so we, we were able to make that work. But what we found was that that two day product was actually pretty profound. So um, I think one of the things we're going to try to do is we're going to try to, um, uh, open that two-day product up uh, with continuing education um, so mm-hmm. that we can bring in more medical providers, prescribers, you know, that kind of thing and corrupt them a little bit because, you know, they're, they're also <laughs> taught in medical school stuff that just is patently untrue. Um, and on mm-hmm. a, you know, on a quick psychiatric rotation, you're not going to ask questions. You're just going to be like, okay, Roger that, you know, if this happens, give them Prozac, yeah. if that happens, give them this, you know, um, so, you know, we, we want to be able to, um, offer people continuing education to, um, you know, begin to think more deeply and meaningfully about those paradigms. Um, I, another thing that we're trying to do is, um, get a podcast. Um, and what, oh. what we would really like to do with that podcast is have our, um, uh, alumni, um, be, you know, the, the people who speak on there and, oh. and, and basically feature, um, veterans who are psychiatric survivors, um, wow. and that you know, who cool. are, yeah. So, you know, we have a lot of people that go through that are, you know, they came to us on 15 drugs, you know, 15 different drugs. 
um, all prescribed by the same person. That's always the thing. Oh, they were drug seeking. No, they weren't. It's all, you know, one person's handiwork. Um, and then, and now they're drug free and they're, you know, living a normal life. And, um, they went from, they didn't pay taxes because they were on disability and now they're paying taxes and they're not, you know, in that system anymore. Um, you know, and so those, these people need to be able to have a voice and, and provide hope on a, you know, on a level that is not, you know, two bubblehead psychologists speaking to one another. Right. Hmm. Yeah. What do you think about, this is just kind of a curiosity question. I don't mean to derail us or anything, um, but someone who, let's say they're 21-year-old 20, male, and then they start to develop symptoms that would look like a diagnosis of schizophrenia, and then, mm-hmm. um, and then, I don't know, maybe a typical story, they they either become homeless or they live in the, or the streets or they, they have to get medicated in order to not have those symptoms any longer. Um, like when it comes to the treatment of what looks like schizophrenia, mm-hmm. what do you, what do you think about that? So any, so a couple of things. One is um, there's a really good documentary out there called crazy wise that got me thinking very, very differently about this. Um, and then two organizations, oh. Madden America and the hearing voices network, also two organizations that, that started me thinking very differently about all of this. But what really iced the cake um, was reading Bob Whitaker's uh, book, The Anatomy of an Epidemic, and um, looking at the outcome data for how we treat people who have those experiences in our country, and our outcome data is abysmal, uh-huh. um, and comparing it to countries where they don't use a Western psychiatric model when someone has a, 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 what we would call a psychotic break um, and um, their outcomes are, they're genius. They're absolutely um, shocking um, how poor ours are compared to theirs. I mean, it's, it, and, and again, I don't want to um, quote the numbers, but I mean, it is, it's stunning, stunning, stunning data. And it's, it's World Health Organization data. So it's not like it came from some crazy outlet, right? <laughs> yeah. um, so, but, but Bob Whitaker's book, I think is the best place to really look at that. Um, okay. So, so the, but, but the bottom line is that, um, you know, taking someone to the emergency room or taking them to a psychiatrist and trying to drug that away, um, it's one option. Um, but, but mm. it's, it's, it's a terrifyingly um, dangerous option when you look at the side effects and the long-term problems with the neuroleptic um, drugs um, that by the way, are called antipsychotics as a marketing ploy (laughs) where they used to be called major tranquilizers and neuroleptics, you know, but that's, Uh, uh you know, um, kind of unpopular verbiage. So change the name, right. Um, Hmm. You know, so they're tranquilizers and you know, the, the idea is that you stop bothering us and, um, you know, when you're tranquilized, that's exactly what happens. So, um, you know, and again, I, you know, even, even with all of the psych meds, you know, I, I have to say, I'm not, I'm not anti-psych med. I would never put myself in that camp. What I am is pro-informed consent. And what I believe is that the vast majority of people, um, if they f- were fully informed, um, would not make that choice. They would do something else if they were fully informed about what are the risks, 
what are the benefits, what are the alternatives, um, and allowed to choose among those alternatives without coercion, which is, by the way, what the ethics code requires. Um, but, but most of the time it's, um, oh, you're depressed, here's the answer. Um, and you have an eight-minute appointment or a 10-minute appointment, that's coercion in and of itself. Um, uh-huh. The system is coercive. And then if you ask questions about... Yeah, if you ask questions about the medication, it's usually just mm-hmm. what are you med non compliant? Just it's an antidepressant. Yeah. Take yeah. it, like right? It, yeah, yeah. No, it absolutely starts in that moment. You're you're non compliant. You're resistant. You're you're all yeah. of these things, and um, uh, that's actually a completely unethical behavior. You know, mm-hmm. because there are things that have been shown um, to uh, outperform, for example, uh, SSRIs when it comes to trauma. Um, Hmm. exercise being one of them right and you know you should have you should you should have that discussion with a person and say well you know you're going to get um more out of this exercise program and these additional benefits um you're and here's what's going to happen if you take my um ssri um Hmm. you know and 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 there's lots of very very potentially very bad outcomes you know this is what i always say is you get more informed consent in a liquor store um, uh, for what you're about to do, than you get from uh, your um, your prescriber for what you're about to do, um, yeah. and how wrong is that? Terrible. Do you guys have any? Are you hiring? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's really interesting. It's it's really really interesting. We don't have any mental health people on our staff. Oh we, we wow! Do not. It, we do not. Yeah. I, I'm a lecturer there, and I you know I run the program from the top. But, you know, uh, as far as the, the rest of it, and we actually have a, um, a clause in our, on our board of directors, we actually have a clause that you cannot be a member of the board of directors if you hold a medical professional license of any kind. Oh, wow. So, um, you know, we want to make sure that it's absolutely clear that we are not a medical program and we are not uh, trying to do anything medical. This is educate, 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 educate. Yeah. Yeah. How well would you say that your program philosophy or approach could map on to the civilian sector you know it's that's a really your so your next guest (laughs) um i I, i'll have to recommend this person there was a a civilian psychologist who contacted me um and asked me if she could come through the program to try to answer that exact question um and she went through this last fall and so she should be your guest to Oh, um, talk about that. Okay. Uh, talk about that exact question. Her name is uh, Gretchen uh, Watson. Gretchen, I, I knew her years ago as Gretchen Lefever, but I, she's remarried. Her name is Watson now. Um, oh. And um, but she came through w- with that exact uh, question in mind. Um, and I think there's some things about it that would be very hard to translate. Um, you know, military mm. people, you can yell at them and be very off color and. <laughs> Um, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, you know, they're not going to really take exception to it. It's how, kind of how we roll. Um, and I think there's yeah. a lot of things that we do that, that wouldn't translate. Um, hmm. But there's also, I think there, there is, is um, certainly uh, elements of it that would, um, yeah, yeah. you know. So, and we, you know, like we're looking at a very specific audience with, with our program. So, yeah. Um, you know, people who served, um, and you know, we don't play the game of you have to have been in combat, you know, so, because there's a lot of things that Mm. military members do, um, that create trauma, you know, so like if you're, you're on the the deck of an aircraft carrier and you 
watch your friend get sucked into a plane engine, right? And come out hamburger on the other end. You're mm -hmm. never going to be the same, right? And, but mm -hmm. you were never in combat mm -hmm. either. So we try no. really hard not to play games like that, you know, like, um, you know, prove you were in combat or, you know, prove that that thing matters to you on some level. It's kind of just like, if you need to be here, you need to be here. Or if you're a military member yeah. that has been psychiatrized and you want out of that, off of that merry-go-round, you know, we're there to help. Uh-huh. Wow. Okay. Good. Is there anything that I haven't either asked you about the program um, that you would like to mention? Um, well, let's see. I think the, I guess the, the logistics of it are really important, which is that for anybody who is a warfighter who would like to come to the program or for someone who wants to send them there, the big thing is who's going to pay for that, right? Because if we're not a medical uh -huh. model, there's no insurance involved in any of that stuff. So the answer is that if you're a warfighter and you uh, want to come through the program, it's a hundred percent door to door paid for by us. Um, the entire Whoa. thing is a gift. Um, so that means that if you're coming from Minnesota, Hawaii, um, you know, Puerto Rico, we, we have people coming up from Puerto Rico to go through the program. Uh, we're buying your plane ticket, your ground transportation, your room, your board, your tuition, your supplies, everything. Um, wow. So it's a door to door experience that, that we um, take care of because again, we don't want to be a speed bump to people getting that um, education. Um, so wow. um, the other thing is um, that we don't take any kind of medical referral or any kind of paperwork from people. We don't produce any paperwork and we don't take any paperwork. So you mm. can just go on our website, click on attend um, and someone will contact you um, and you're, you know, you're good to go. So it's free and it's easy. Um, and um, we've had everyone from uh, an enlisted, what we call an E2 all the way up to we've had a, a, a four-star general go through the program. So everything in between. Um, oh, wow. So there's no rank barriers um, to, to participating at all. Oh, that's amazing. I, I, I thought I, earlier, I thought of asking like, what is it? Yeah. What kind what is the cost like, but I, it skipped, it skipped over, but that's amazing. I'm curious how you guys do that, but that's, that's probably a conversation for another day. Fundraising, <laughs> fundraising, fundraising, fundraising. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We fundraise a lot and we have very, very generous donors. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. Again, it's so cool what you're doing. And I, I saw, I think it was in your article you mentioned at the, during the program. Um, it's not like, yeah, you're not a medical model. It's not like you guys, you're the doctor and, what I say goes, mm -hmm. it's very equal footing. You, you said people kind of get uniforms. Yeah, this is it. You're looking at it. So um, okay. this is in the winter. Obviously, you're going to get a, a fleece so you can stay nice and warm. Um, mm. And then um, we a couple of polo shirts and some what we call we call them PT shirts, but they're just T-shirts oh. for when we do exercises and outdoor things with your name plastered across the back. You know, so oh. um, so kind of familiar items um, and. Um, but the, but the you, the staff wears the exact same thing that the participants wear, yeah. um, you know, again, because it's not like I'm wearing a white coat and you're my patient. It's yeah. I'm yeah. you and you're me. And the difference between me and you is that I have something to teach you. Um, but you also probably have mm. something to teach me, which I'll, I will learn over the course yeah. of the week. Right. Um, so 
Um, but we're we're very um, we're very um, Adlerian in that way that there's no like hmm. patient model. There's just me and you, um, and you know we're on this journey. And you know, and it's the ones who are in the staff roles have just you know a little bit farther down the road. Hmm. Wow. Well, I, uh, I don't know if, I don't think I told you this. I was in the Marine Corps for four years and I got out. Yeah. Um, and part of why I wanted to get into psychology was I wanted to help veterans. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm, yeah, I'm I'm rethinking a lot of that and what that's going to look like in the future. But yeah, I just want to say like, again, thank you for everything. Thanks for your service. Thanks for doing this. I think it's, it sounds like an amazing program. Um, amazing alternative to treatment, right? Mm -hmm. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so let me, let me just like interrupt you and say, you are welcome at any time, go Mm -hmm. on the website, click on attend. Um, we will buy you a plane ticket or whatever you need and, 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 uh, go through the program and, and, uh, you know, make up your own mind about the whole thing. Uh, um, as, as a person who served in the Marine Corps, you're our, you are our, uh, demographic, but also, um, as someone who's thinking about going into mental health, we would just love to thoroughly corrupt you. So, yes, please. <laughs> so, corrupt so, me. um, your, now your, um, uniform would be red. Oh. Okay. Because, you know, as, so you, as a Marine, you would understand this since you, since you served on the green side, of course, we're putting you in red, right? Makes perfect sense. So, um, but yes, you, you would receive red uniforms, um, Marines and field Marine for fleet Marine force, Navy wear red Navy wears gray. The air force has a, like a Royal blue color. Um, the army is obviously green. And then, um, Uh the, uh, uh, people who go through who are first responders have uh, a dark blue um, uniform. Oh, okay. First responders too. Cool. Huh. Yep. Yep. Do you guys have, uh, is there like a wait list? Is it, is it pretty much whenever you're ready? Come on. Yeah. Most of the time. <laughs> so we do t- 20 people at a time and most of the time. Um, huh. So w- we usually let about 24 in and then, you know, there's always some attrition right at the last minute, you know, somebody gets COVID, somebody uh-huh. misses the plane, whatever. Um, so, um, and, and we, we don't usually have trouble getting people in at, at that pace. It seems to be, um, it seems to be a good, um, a, a good amount, I guess it's 20 people six times a year. Um, but we just let people pick their own dates. And it, once a cohort is full, we just take it off of the sign up on the website. Oh. So yeah. um, there would have to be a, okay. a pretty big reason for us to say no to somebody um, for the most part. Yeah. If you sign up, you're coming. So. Yeah. Last, last question. In your, in your understanding, how many people know about this? Like, I, I know you said people from other countries, but before I read the article, I had never heard about this. It's not like right. someone told me, oh, there's this great resource for vet. Yeah. So how many people mm-hmm. actually know about yeah. your program? So the way that like 99% of the people who come through our program um, hear about it from somebody who went through our program. So it's just, mm-hmm. you know, we have somebody come from Arkansas and they go back to Arkansas and they're t- they just tell everybody who will listen like, oh my God, I just did this great thing. 
Um, so yeah. like during a seven day uh, around Wednesday or Thursday, we start to see this huge uptick in, uh, you know, people registering. And it's because the people who are actually there that week huh. are calling home and going, <laughs> oh my God, you have to do this. So, um, huh. so that's really where the, the, the lion's share of, of that comes, comes from. Most of our publicity stuff that we do is really in the name of fundraising. So, um, hmm. okay. You know, so right now, you know, basically, um, we can kind of keep up with the flow based on um, just the people who are leaving, telling their, you know, battle buddies, you know, you got to go. So, so yeah. I'm telling you. Yeah. So we'll see you there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, yeah. Dr. Viatin, thank you so much for, for joining me today. This has been a very mm -hmm. enjoyable conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.